Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this inaugural lecture, Professor Simon Wood of the University of Bath talks about smoothing, letting data speak without telling it what to say. Welcome this evening. It's a pleasure to introduce Simon Wood as Professor of Statistics. As I look at the record of Simon's academic career, I see an interesting smooth transition. Simon was an undergraduate at the University of Manchester, where he graduated with a BSc in physics in 1986. He took his PhD in applied physics at the University of Strathclyde with a topic on estimation of mortality rates in stage-structured populations, a topic that to me has clear overtones of statistics. As a postdoctoral researcher, Simon worked on bioeconomic modeling at the Fisher's Laboratory in Lowestoft, and then on mathematical modeling at the NERC Center for Population Biology at Imperial College. Note that applications in ecology are now starting to appear. Simon was appointed as a lecturer at the University of St. Andrews in 1994 in the Statistical Ecology Group, and he was promoted to reader there. He moved to the University of Glasgow in 2003, and in 2006, we were very pleased to have him come to Bath as a professor of statistics. Simon describes his research interests as using ecological dynamic models as statistical models, and then, as a second topic, simply smoothing. Simon is very well known for his book, Generalized Additive Models, and the related package in the computer language R for generalized additive modeling. He has also published around 50 journal articles, which have appeared in leading statistical journals, such as the Journal of the Royal Statistical Society, the Journal of the American Statistical Association, and his work on biological applications has been published in journals such as Nature and the Proceedings of the Royal Society. It's my great pleasure to introduce Professor Simon Wood to give his inaugural lecture this evening. And I look forward with all of you to hear him speak on the topic of smoothing, letting data speak without telling it what to say. Simon. Thanks, Chris. I have to say the public doesn't look quite like I anticipated. They all seem rather more familiar. Um, uh, I had to write the title for this uh, a long time before preparing the talk, and I thought actually that rather than start with the rather tedious title I gave back then, I'd start with the one thing that everybody knows about statistics. And that's this. There are three types of lies. Lies, damned lies, and statistics. Now, this is usually attributed to Benjamin Disraeli. Uh, he was a clever guy. So why did he have such a negative uh, impression of statistics? Well, I'm not sure, uh, but let me introduce the past president of the Royal Statistical Society, William Gladstone. Gladstone and Disraeli didn't exactly see eye to eye. Gladstone was president of the Royal uh, Statistical Society from 1867 to 1869 and uh, defeated Disraeli uh, in the general election of 1868, you will no note. Now, it could be that this has nothing to do with Disraeli's opinion, of course. Actually, Disraeli was on the wrong side of other scientific questions at the time. Um, this is about Darwinism, uh, where he says, that question is this, is man an ape or an angel? I, my lord... I am on the side of the angels. I repudiate with indignation and abhorrence those newfangled theories, the newfangled theories being Darwinism, 
Of course, he may have been playing to the gallery here, and this was the Oxford Diocesan Conference. Um, and you have to forgive him, he hadn't had eight years of looking at George W. Bush in order to resolve the question of ape or angel. Um, but let me leave the 19th century behind. Um, and move on to the 20th century. Now, in the early part of the 20th century, actually, things happened which make me think that perhaps Disraeli was right. Um, statistics and Darwinism got together, and they produced something rather unpleasant called eugenics. It didn't appear to be unpleasant at the outset. This is a poster from the early 20s. Eugenics is the self-direction of, hum self of human evolution. And the statisticians were heavily involved in this. You can see down here on the poster, statistics is one of the branches. R.A. Fisher and Carl Pearson, some of the founders of modern statistics, weren't just supporters of eugenics, they were active proponents of it. Now, Darwinian evolution at its core says basically this, that what we see around us is not that which is good or best, it's just that which perpetuates itself. But the eugenicists didn't understand that. The eugenicists saw evolution as being the engine of progress, driven by survival of the fittest. Who can argue with that? And they thought they could measure fitness, and they used statistics to do that. Now, the problem with eugenics was it was not only an abuse of statistics, it was not only a misunderstanding of Darwinism. It was something people tried to put into practice. As we know, that ended exceedingly badly. Moving on to much less serious issues, you can think about the current economic crisis. And there you've got a situation where the misunderstanding of the scope of models is clearly at the heart of things. Uh, it's clear that the bank's models of risk have been inadequate, and they didn't understand the inadequacy. It's also clear that they didn't really think about Darwinism in any of this. If you set up a system which rewards, with enormous financial benefits, short-term risk-taking, you perhaps shouldn't be entirely surprised that it doesn't promote long-term economic prudence. This, incidentally, um, is Hogarth's take on the South Sea bubble, rather than directly the current. But the current financial crisis, I think, is not that important in the long term. A much more important issue is this one. For most of my adult life, there's been a fairly vigorous debate about these two pictures, um, and in particular, whether the top one's going up and whether the top one's related to the bottom one. Now, the top one's the mean global temperature series, um, standardised, so it's been centred over here. Uh, the bottom one's atmospheric CO2. The red stuff is the direct measurement, and the black stuff is taken from ice cores. Now, some quite odd arguments have gone on uh, about this. Um, a lot of people will quite seriously look at this series and they say, well, it's bumping up and down, um, so something random going on here. Um, things randomly bump up and down, they may easily randomly bump up as well as down. There's nothing really going on here. So the model there is essentially something like the Archangel Gabriel on the 1st of January every year flips a coin and decides whether the temperature is going to go up or down. Okay, and of course, then it may well 
drift up as well as down. But the Earth's atmosphere isn't like that. It's not just a simple, simple random walk. This plot looks a little bit like some sort of random walk, but you might as well say that since a candle and a stick of dynamite look the same, it doesn't matter which one you light. Now, there are other arguments as well. People will say, oh, well, um, we can't even predict the weather tomorrow. Why should we be able to predict the climate? But the same people I've noticed don't tend to book sun <coughs> seaside holidays in January, despite the fact that they can't, apparently can't predict the climate. But they ought to if they really believe their own argument. Now, what's really wrong, I think, with the debate about these pictures here is that it's just starting from the wrong place. It's starting from the wrong model. The implicit assumption is that it's perfectly reasonable to presume that the climate will continue in the state that it has always been for as long as we can remember, unless there's terribly good evidence to say that it isn't. And when you look at these series, they don't give you terribly good evidence, and so that's fine. But these aren't the only pictures we have. This is another picture. We've known this for the whole of my adult life, and it's an exceedingly scary picture. So this is all about the absorption spectrum. This is about how the Earth gets hot and how it gets cold. So along the bottom here, we've got wavelength of light in microns. The Earth gets hot, basically, of course, because the sun shines on it. Um, and this black curve here shows the distribution of the different wavelengths coming in, mostly the visible light and stuff. In it comes through the atmosphere, heats us up. And as we know, we've got to cool off somehow. And that's done by infrared radiation being emitted back out again. Now, the infrared that the Earth emits doesn't all go straight back out, of course. Um, it gets absorbed in various places and by various gases in the atmosphere. If you look at the bottom curve here, uh, this is about absorption by water vapour. So you can see that basically at these long wavelengths here, we're getting everything absorbed. Then there's a bit of a window where some of the infrared gets out and then everything is absorbed again, doesn't make it out of the atmosphere. So basically, we're being cooled by the infrared that escapes through here, except it's also caught by other stuff like oxygen, which we kind of need, and CO2, which is only really a trace gas, but, uh, but has quite a big absorbing impact. When you add all these absorptions up, uh, you get this total absorption by the atmosphere here. So the infrared we're emitting has to escape through this little window here, and the problem is that we're shoveling stuff into this window uh, at a quite alarming rate. Now, if you see that picture, you appreciate what it means. How is it rational to look at this picture and suppose that actually... There's no relationship, we don't have to worry about it. The rational null hypothesis here is that it's going to get warmer until you find good evidence that it isn't. And that isn't the way we behave, and I think that's a complete misuse of models. Why is this picture so difficult to communicate? Why is it so difficult to get across? Now, in the self-selected audience that we have in this room, most of you, I think, are completely used to looking at abstract visual information and interpreting it. And maybe you look at this and it does give you a sick feeling in the pit of your stomach. But the people who, who lead us, the politicians, these are people who deal largely in words, I think. Um, and abstract visual information, I think, is not so easy if your primary tool, uh, tools are words. Let me give you another example, not taken uh, remotely from science. Uh, this is Picasso's, oh, let's get this wrong, Demoiselles d'Avignon. Now, you can find acres and acres written about this picture. Uh, including all sorts of very, very strange explanations of what it means. Picasso apparently got quite irritated uh, when he was asked what it meant, uh, refused to answer, um, and people kind of went away and left him alone. I think you can sort of see his irritation. Um, he called it the, the Davignon in the title. It doesn't refer to a bit of, uh, a bit of France. 
Um, it's a street in the red light district in Barcelona, which Picasso was known to frequent. I think this is pretty clearly Picasso's viewpoint. Um, I don't think you have to be a genius. This is a pretty crude cartoon. Uh, on the left hand here, we've got the early part of the evening. Something happens which he chooses to symbolise by this bowl of fruit down here, and then his perception is changed somewhat over here. Now, that's a pretty crude cartoon, but if we can't get that across, if that isn't clear to people, then what hope do we have with something like that? Okay, so let me move on from generalities um, to looking at a specific case of how the misinterpretation of models can lead you astray. So Robin Baker's an academic who I think would have had no problem with the picture uh, from Picasso there. He specialises essentially in applying Darwinian theory to human reproductive behaviour. Uh, this is the cover of a popular book on the subject which has been reprinted many times. It's quite successful. Uh, but it is actually based on published science. Okay, so animal behaviour, very respectable journal. Uh, this paper was published in 1993 by Baker and Bellis. Now what Baker and Bellis did was they got a bunch of student volunteers uh, from Manchester University, student couples, um, and they were interested in sperm count in individual copulations between these couples against a couple of variables. And a couple of variables were the proportion of time that the couple had spent together um, since the last copulation and the time since the last copulation, these things here. Now, they analysed these data in quite respectable sort of a statistical way, and they were interested in the, the relationship, basically, this, this, uh, and this. And what they concluded was that, actually, this variable here has no effect on sperm count, um, but that the count goes down with the proportion of time that the couple have spent together uh, since the last copulation. Now, being good Darwinian biologists, they interpret this, of course, um, and they say it's all about the opportunities that the female may have had for infidelity. Uh, so essentially, if a couple haven't spent much time together, then there's lots of opportunity, and the male had better compensate for that sometime. This is the sperm competition thing. Uh, so that's fine. As I said, this was done with quite respectable statistics. Let me try and explain the statistics. What the statistics tries to do is to separate out all the variability into there, into the part attributable to this variable, the part attributable to this variable, and the part that's just noise. So how do I go about doing that? Uh, well, these pictures kind of show you. Um, so we'll start with one of the variables, and then you kind of fold in the other one. Uh, so here's the count data here. Here's the proportion of time the couple have spent together. Um, we'll, we'll subtract the mean count, because we're not actually terribly interested in that. Uh, that gives us these red points here. Plot those against this proportion of time they spent together. And then what you do is basically find the straight line that best fits those data. Okay, so there's a, a straight line that kind of goes through them. Uh, in some loose sort of sense, this is biology, so there's quite a lot left unexplained. Um, then what you do uh, is you look at what you haven't explained so far. So that's the green stuff here, okay? So this is all the, the difference between the actual observed count and what's predicted by the red line is the green stuff. So we want to take that and we're going to plot that against the other variable and see if the other variable is any good at explaining what we had left over. Okay? And then we're going to use that line that we get there um, as our sort of model relationship between the time since the last copulation and the count. Now, we could sort of stop there, um, but then our answers will be dependent on which variable we started with. So, in fact, what we have to go do is go through an, more iterations of this process. We take the unexplained stuff here, plot it against the original variable, re-estimate this relationship here, and just keep going, and eventually that all uh, settles down. 
So when you've been through that process, you end up with a couple of straight lines summarizing the relationship then between uh, the sperm count here and these other two variables. Um, once you've got these two straight lines, you can say, well, um, is there any real evidence um, that the relationships they've found are stronger than you would have got by chance? And you can do that in a respectable statistical manner. And what you find is exactly what Baker and Bellis found. Um, there's evidence for the sperm count declining with the proportion of time spent together, and no evidence for the other variable. But this wasn't the only data set that they collected. They collected another data set, and rather more complicated one. So here we've got sperm count, and then we've got a bunch of variables to do with the, the, the pair. So female age, female height, female weight, same for male. Then this interesting one down here, male volume, which is male testicular volume. Now, they went through exactly the same sort of process that I've just shown you, um, using all these variables. And what they concluded was that basically everything drops out apart from female weight. So the only thing that sperm count depends on is female weight. Now, again, being good Darwinists, what did they do? Well, they said, how can we explain this? Um, and they explain it in terms of females with higher weight having higher reproductive potential and males, therefore, investing more um, in them. I won't comment any further on that conclusion. <laughs> um, now, if you look rather carefully at the analysis they did um, and at how well the model actually fits the data, uh, you find something quite interesting. There's this data point here. Okay? Some um, kind of heavy guy with a fairly low sperm count. And what you find is that all the other data do appear to fit the model, but he really doesn't. Okay, there's something that is just not the same as all the others. It just doesn't fit in with this model at all. What's worse is what happens if you decide, therefore, you're going to just delete that single individual to see how, how robust your conclusions are. And what you find is that this variable drops out, 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 and we're left with this variable here and the rather uninteresting conclusion that the sperm count depended on the testicular volume. <laughs> now, the thing is, it was the same individuals that took part in this study, or some of the same individuals took part in this study as took part in the original study. Okay? And in fact, you can match up, therefore, some of these volumes with the individuals in the, in the original study, okay, the one I showed you at the beginning. And you can guess what's coming now. Um, when you do that, we get the rather tedious conclusion that actually none of the other stuff mattered, and it was just uh, male testicular volume that mattered. Of course, that result is not very, very marketable. Okay, I couldn't really write a book about that still. Okay. So one of the problems then with the Baker and Bellis analysis there is that they've overused their model. They've fitted this model and then they've forgotten it was a model. They've kind of not checked it properly. Okay, they've not recognised its limitations. A rather less serious case of some of the other examples that we saw earlier. But there's another way in which perhaps you could question these models. Why on earth should I have assumed that there was a straight line relationship uh, between any of these variables? There's just nothing a priori to say that, that should, that's a reasonable thing to do. Um, what do I actually know about what shape these relationships should be? I don't. Um, so it might have been more honest um, to set up my model in the first place so that it didn't have that inbuilt assumption. I did something a bit more flexible that perhaps slightly more honestly reflected uh, what I might actually know. So why don't I just let the, um, the relationships be curved? I'm just going to say that there's some sort of curved smooth function. I'm going to try and estimate them on that basis. Okay. 
So getting slightly ahead of myself, if I do that uh, for these Baker and Bellis data, then what happens? Uh, well, we still find um, this negative relationship with prop partner. It's ignoring the, the volume measurement at the moment. Um, but just repeating their original analysis, we find that the relationship between sperm count and the time since last copulation is actually this curved thing, which, if you think about it, is somewhat more physiologically plausible. So we get a slightly more honest, I think, model um, if we do this, this thing of just letting the relationships be smooth curves if we don't know that there's some particular rigid form. So how do you go about doing that? Um, so this talk probably gets more and more tedious as I get into what I actually did. Um, <laughs> so how do we choose, uh, how do we choose curves that best fit? Um, so here, well, here are some data. Um, size along the bottom axis, um, which is, in this case, the size of car engines, wear along the y-axis, which in this case is an index of how quickly they're wearing out. Um, so the black dots here uh, are actual observed data. They're engine sizes um, and the rate at which the engine wore. And what I want to do is just stick a smooth curve visualised by this red line, well, this red curve here, through these data. I want something that fits reasonably well. Uh, so what do we actually do? Uh, well, let's take a bendy strip of wood. Let's hook it up to the data points with springs. Um, and let's look at the result. And the result is a spline function. That's what it's known as. Uh, it's also known as a spline because exactly this physical setup is used by draftsmen or used to be before computers. Now, of course, these are special mathematical springs not available in the shops. Um, uh, they have zero length when they're not extended, um, and they're only extendable in the y direction. Uh, but apart from that, uh, everything's, everything's fairly physical. Now, the great thing about splines is that they're a good way of incorporating these models, of incorporating smooth curves into models, because we can really control the degree of flexibility um, of the relationship by simply controlling the degree of flexibility um, of the spline itself. So if I have a really bendy strip of wood, um, then I end up going through pretty much all the data points, apart from where the data didn't actually agree with each other. Uh, if I make the strip of wood a bit more rigid, uh, then of course I get something um, a little bit less flexible, a bit smoother, I can make it more rigid still, and if I make the strip of wood completely rigid, I get back to my straight line case. Okay. So this controllability is quite a nice thing about splines. The other thing that's nice is that I can describe them mathematically uh, in a way that's extremely easy to work with. So since I'm adopting the fiction that this is really a public lecture and not a lecture to the maths department, I'm not going to tell you what the maths is. Um, we don't really just want uh, smooth curves, of course. What about having smooth surfaces? Well, we've got several options in the case of a smooth surface as a model component. Um, one thing we could do is simply replace these bendy strips uh, with bendy sheets. Um, so here's an example. Here's a sort of relatively flexible sheet being distorted to meet some data. I've not shown the data here because it just gets too messy. Um, if we make the thing a bit less uh, flexible, we get something a bit smoother, less flexible still, and then eventually we get to something very close to a plane. That's one option. That option is quite good if the same degree of basic bendiness is appropriate in all directions, um, but it's not always. Um, sometimes we'd like a bit more things to go a bit differently in the different directions. Uh, what we could do then uh, is to make a lattice out of bendy strips. Um, that's a tensor product spline, technically. So basically we've just got bendy strips uh, going in the z direction here. Um, got six of them showing. Um, and then we just join those up um, using some bendy strips going in the x direction. 
Um, and by and large, the sensible thing to do is to have a different degree of flexibility in this direction to the one you have in this direction. And then you fill in the, fill in the gaps in some easy sort of way. So we can do that mathematically. Um, that's a tensor product smoother. Oh, this takes a while. Occasionally, uh, you may encounter some situation in which you want to smooth within some finite area, um, but you really don't want the different bits of the area to sort of connect outside the area. Okay? So here's some, uh, some data from the Aral Sea. It's, it's remote sense chlorophyll data from a satellite. It's a bit noisy. We want, might want to clean it up a bit. Um, this is the raw data, and this is an example of the data where I've actually just randomly dropped a whole bunch of the observations from this basin. Now, if we were to use one of these sort of bendy sheet smoothers, um, they'll tend to, to join the two arms of the basin together, um, and we get kind of leakage that's not justified by the data between here and here, which is a bit unfortunate. Okay. Um, you can see the effect much more strongly here. If there wasn't much data over here, then we get an enormous amount of leakage of, uh, of smoothness from here to here. On the other hand, if you construct your smoother by thinking about having a a soap film that's defined only within um, the region concerned, and you let that distort towards the data, you can do much better. You can get rid of this leakage uh, altogether. Okay, so all of those examples I showed you, we can describe very precisely mathematically, and we can work with them um, in models. We can slot them into models uh, quite easily. And they all have the feature that the degree of smoothness of the either the curve or the um, or the surface is controlled by one or two numbers, um, which are basically the degree of stiffness of the thing that we're, of the sheet or the, um, uh, or the bending strips. Um, but we've got to choose those numbers. Well, how do you do that? Well, there's a bunch of options, and of course, I'm going to chicken out and show you the easiest one. Um, but it's also quite a good one. Um, this is cross-validation um, is, is the approach that works quite well. Um, and what we do is we think about a set of data that we want to fit with one of these models. So that's all the data points here. But rather than fitting to all the data points, um, we fit to just some of them, the ones shown in white here, and we leave out one of the data points. Okay? And then we see how well we do at predicting the missing data point on the basis of fitting to all the rest. Okay? So here, I've used a very rigid sort of a smoother. It doesn't fit any of the data very well, and it doesn't do very well with that one. Over here, um, I've used a very flexible smoother. This goes through the data, but because the data contains a sort of noise, stuff that I'm not really interested in, that tends to mean that I overdo it and I miss the missing data point very badly as well. If I get the degree of flexibility about right, on the other hand, then when I fit the white data, I also do quite well at predicting the black data point. So, of course, I'd want the degree of flexibility to be something like that. Now, I can formalize that process. Um, of course, I don't just leave out one data point. Um, I'll leave each data point out successively, average the predictive powers, and use that as some sort of measure of how well uh, my model's doing, and I choose the degree of flexibility of the model um, in order to, uh, to optimize my ability to predict this missing data. So that's the cross-validation idea. Now, in fact, uh, most of um, my contribution in this area is all about choosing degrees of flexibility um, when you've got lots and lots of terms in the model. Uh, this is an activity that I feel is a little bit like bowel surgery. It's extremely good that somebody's doing it, and lots of people are grateful that somebody's doing it. Um, it's great to talk about to other bowel surgeons, but it's not really something that's very good for sort of general discourse. Uh, so I'm going to skip over it um, and look at some applications. Let's start with a simple one, 
cleaning up a brain scan. Okay, so this is a uh, an NMR scan uh, through the brain. Uh, medium fundamental power quotient is the thing that's actually been measured. Um, if you look at that brain scan, it's pretty noisy. There's a lot of variability in it. It's a bit difficult to extract the pattern. It's not clear whether there's anything more going on than just, than just noise from the instrument. So it would be quite nice to, to clean it up and see if there's any real systematic pattern there. So what I'm going to do is just model that the log of these measurements um, as a smooth surface. Um, I'll represent that using one of these thin plate splines, these bendy sheets. Um, I'll estimate the degree of smoothness by cross-validation. Um, the kind of springs attaching the thin plate to, uh, to the data have to be adjusted a bit now. Now they've got strength depending on the height of the plate itself uh, to get things right. But that's just a technical detail. So we can go away and do this stuff. And there's the cleaned up image. Um, and the thing that you immediately notice about that is that what we find is that there is real systematic variability across that image. Um, and you can see much more clearly uh, where it's going on. Okay, in fact, for this subject, uh, this part of the brain is being stimulated directly, and they're interested in what's happening in this bit here. So that's a really simple routine sort of a smoothing example. You can see it's a case, though, where a priori you've got no idea um, what sort of model would be reasonable. You know, you've just got to say this is a smooth function and then see what, that, what the data tells you. Here's another example. Is Cairo getting hotter? So these are mean daily temperatures um, in Cairo, unfortunately in Fahrenheit. I apologize for that. Um, from the 1st of January uh, 1995. Uh, you can immediately see several things about the series. There's a clear annual cycle there. There's an awful lot of day-to-day -day variability. And if you look closer, it's correlated from one day to the next. But what I'd really like to know is, is there a general increase um, as we move through the years here. And looking at the data, it's not at all clear. How do you go about doing that? Well, we need a model again. Um, in this case, we can have a model in which we allow the temperature to vary smoothly with the day of the year, um, but we're not going to tell it exactly how uh, it should vary. A sinusoid, I should say, doesn't work. Um, then we might think that in addition to this annual variation, this throughout the year variation, there's some long-term trend going through that thing. And we're going to have to be slightly more sophisticated about the errors than the simple spring mechanism that I had before. Uh, we're going to need the, the random variability to actually have some correlation from one day to the next. So if it's hot one day, it's, it's going to be a bit hotter the next day as well. So we can take that model, use the same sort of ideas that I've been talking about and just fit it. Um, and the answer is yes, it is. Um, here's the estimate of the smooth function of day of the year, uh, which is actually made to join up. Uh, here and here, okay, so it joins up here and here, and it's derivative continuous there and there, which would be a bit difficult to achieve with a strip of wood, uh, but mathematically we can do it. Um, and there's the, the long-term trend, and you can see the long-term trend, it's not very, it's not giving a huge increase in temperature, it's about one and a half Fahrenheit. Uh, the dotted lines there are the uncertainty associated with it, but on the basis of this model, which when you check it, fits the data really rather well, uh, there's definitely an increase. That's something I think you couldn't have told uh, just by looking at the data itself. It's something you couldn't really have told with a very much simpler model in which you just did something like put a sinusoid through there, because if you put a sinusoid in place of this thing, uh, you get the error structure of the model all wrong, and then we can't really say how wide our uncertainties are on this thing. Let's have another look, another example. Um, this, is a, this is a little bit different. Um, this is about predicting octane rating of fuel um, from 
infrared spectra, infrared absorption spectra um, for samples of the, of the fuel. Okay. So the thing about octane rating, it's a bit of a weird thing. So octane rating um, is basically a measure of knock resistance, knocking resistance in petrol engines. Okay. So if you run a petrol engine at too high a compression, then the fuel will ignite before you produce a spark, and that's not terribly good. It doesn't make the engine run terribly well. Okay. Now, if you take a sort of idealized uh, fuel mixture, um, then the proportion of octane in that idealized fuel mixture will give you an indication of knocking resistance. And what you do when you've got actual real fuel, so hang in there, I'll get there eventually, is that you take um, a special test engine uh, where you can ramp the compression up. You run this test engine with your sample of fuel. You ramp the pressure up um, until you get knocking, right? So you've got a knocking pressure for that engine, and then you compare that to the proportion of octane you would have required to um, achieve the same, uh, the same knocking behavior. Okay, so a very indirect um, measure of, uh, of knocking resistance. Um, it requires these special test engines and all sorts of calibration, all a bit of a nuisance. Um, on the other hand, the near-infrared absorption spectra for these fuel samples is very cheap and easy to get these days. Um, and of course, in some sense, summarizes the chemistry of the sample you've got. So surely we ought to be able to go from a curve like this to the octane without messing about with silly engines. Um, but the question is, how do we combine the information? How are we going to do that? Okay. Now, I've actually got 60 samples like this, so we have uh, 60 octane ratings and 60, uh, 60 of these. Uh, spectra, uh, how can we go about setting up a suitable model? So here it is. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to suppose... Oop, getting ahead of myself. We're going to suppose that we can predict the octane uh, by basically taking the spectrum, multiplying it by some smooth function unknown, and taking the average of that, and we'll assume that the octane's that average plus some other constant we're going to estimate. Okay? So a fairly straightforward model, provided you can somehow estimate this red function here. Um, but of course, you've got no idea what its shape ought to be in the first place. Well, in fact, the same technology I've been talking about can do this problem as well. Um, if you do it, there's the estimated function. Uh, the grey bars here are how uncertain you are about it. Um, models are reasonable fit, um, and we actually did quite well at predicting the octane rating. There, there's the fitted uh, plotted here, it's the measured. So it's not perfect, uh, but it does not a bad job, and it's much, much cheaper than the, than the original. Uh, okay. So let me finish, actually, with this example. Um, this is a slightly more complicated data set. This is a, a study on diabetic retinopathy carried out in Wisconsin. Um, there's several hundred patients um, enrolled in this study, uh, all with diabetes. Um, and the study's interested in the development of retinopathy, which is a side effect of uh, diabetes. So it's basically degeneration of the retina. Um, they measured several uh, variables um, alongside um, whether or sorry whether or not um, the patient developed uh, retinopathy. There's a body mass index, the usual sort of height to weight sort of ratio thing. Um, percent glycosylated hemoglobin in the blood. So that requires a bit of explanation. Um, your hemoglobin will bind to sugar um, where it should be binding to oxygen. So if you've got too much free sugar in the blood, you end up with a fairly high proportion of your hemoglobin 
bound to sugar, which is, which is not good for you. Um, so that's that measure there. Um, and then there's duration of diabetes at baseline. Okay, so that's when individuals were recruited into this study. Now, the belief is that somehow these variables are going to tell you, are going to be predictive of your probability of developing retinopathy. But it's not clear how. Okay, it's not clear what the shape of the relationship is going to be. So we don't want to start out with some clumsy model which just assumes that we know what the shape is. We'd rather start out with something that doesn't assume that we know what the shape is um, and, and work from there. So what I'm going to do um, is to suppose that the probability of developing retinopathy um, is related to a sum of smooth curves of, depending on body mass index, glycosylated hemoglobin and duration, plus some smooth surfaces characterizing how these things interact. Okay, so we'll have a smooth surface. Um, about how body mass index and glycosylated hemoglobin might simultaneously affect your, your probability of developing a disease. Now, using the same technology I've already talked about, um, we can fit that, that more complicated model. Um, and here's, here's the results of doing that. So here are the, the three sort of individual smooth functions that I talked about estimated from these data. And here are these two-dimensional ones. Now, interpretation of these models requires... Um, slightly more thinking about than the ones I've shown so far. If you do think about it for long enough, you realise that, that you can't interpret these things... Uh, sorry, you can't interpret these things um, until you've interpreted these things, OK? So these are all about the combined effect of variables. Um, and these are about their sort of individual effects. But the combined effects... This is sort of the combined effect once you've taken these into account. It's all slightly complicated. If we start with these ones, it's pretty simple. So... There appears, according to the model, to be no additional combined effect of duration of disease at baseline with glycosylated hemoglobin. Um, no effect additional to the effects in here. Okay, that's what we're saying here. Similarly for this one, there's no effect additional um, to the effects in duration and of duration of BMI on their own. <clears throat> but if we look at this one, there is some evidence that there's some interaction of glycosylated hemoglobin uh, with body mass index. So this, these two then we can't interpret separately. We're going to have to interpret those in combination with this one here. Duration we can interpret on its own. Um, <clears throat> and it's a slightly odd pattern, which you wouldn't have guessed in advance, but probably a, a correct pattern. So what's happening is that your probability of retinopathy is increasing with duration of disease up to this point, and then it's decreasing again. That requires a bit of thinking about, but it's probably a selection effect. You don't get to have had this disease for 50 years and never get to be on the study if you were going to develop diabetic retinopathy. Okay, so let's think then about that, um, that combined thing. Um, so we have the effects of body mass index and glycosylated hemoglobin together. So we've got to, if we combine all those curves together, this is what the relationship looks like of probability um, of disease um, against these two variables. And you get something that, that you wouldn't really have guessed at in advance, um, but it's perhaps quite interesting. Some of the effects are sort of the obvious ones. The increased body mass index, by and large, seems to increase your risk. Um, and percent glycosylated haemoglobin undoubtedly increases your risk. But there's a funny sort of ridge running up here, and there's this area down here. And that area down there is unexpected. Um, 
if you look at the uncertainty associated with it, it may not be real, but actually most, if you look at this carefully, it probably is real. Um, what's going on there? Well, it's not certain, but it's quite probable that what's happening here is that if you're this heavy and have your glycosylated haemoglobin down this low, your disease either isn't that serious or you've got it under seriously good control somehow. If you've managed to get yourself down in here, then you're somehow doing pretty well. Okay. Uh, I'm pretty much going to stop there. Um, if you'd like to try any of these methods for honest modelling out yourself, it's all free. Um, you can get it from this web address here, uh, download the R package, um, and everything is there that you need to do anything uh, that I've shown you. Thank you.